Hello, and welcome back to our second season of Babel, Translating the Middle East. I'm John Alterman, a senior vice president here at CSIS, the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair on Global Security and Geostrategy, and director of the Middle East Program. I'm joined here by two of my colleagues. I'm Will Todman, an associate fellow with the Middle East Program here at CSIS. And I'm McKinley Noop, research assistant, also with the Middle East Program. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to discuss what's really happening in the Middle East and North Africa. We feature regional experts who can explain what's going on, provide context on pivotal developments, and highlight trends you may have missed. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. This week's episode focuses on sectarianism and Hezbollah in Lebanon. First, John interviews Hanin Radar, a visiting fellow at the Washington Institute who focuses on Shia politics throughout the Levant. Then John, McKinley and I talk about sectarianism, both in Lebanon and the Middle East at large. Hanin Radar is the Friedman Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. She previously served as the managing editor of Lebanon's NOW website, where she focused on the evolution of Hezbollah inside Lebanon's political system and Iran's growing influence throughout the Middle East. She wrote for the Lebanese newspapers Asafir, Anahar, and Al Hayat. Hanin, welcome to Babel. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you have written a lot about Iran's regional influence seen through the prism of Lebanon. As somebody who grew up in Lebanon, what does that really look like? I grew up in the south of Lebanon, which is basically Shia stronghold. And I was born in the 70s, like before Hezbollah was uh, uh, started in Lebanon. I think it's very important to understand how the relationship between Hezbollah and the Shia community changed over time and over the phases. And it will make us understand what's happening today in Lebanon. So Hezbollah is the party of God. Yes. It is supported with money and training mm -hmm. by Iran mm. to the tune of something like $700 million a year. Yeah. How do you see and feel Hezbollah in Lebanon? Well, you don't see Hezbollah in Lebanon. They do not like wear uh, uh, their uniforms and carry their weapons in the street over like checkpoints. Even during the wars, like the 2006 war and 2000 liberation of the South and all these, you know, conflicts that Hezbollah was engaged in, you don't see them. They're very discreet in their presence as a military force, but you see them um, in their social networks. They have a wide network of social services that cater for the Shia community, and you see them in politics because um, at one point they refused to be part of the Lebanese government, but today they and their allies are very much part of the Lebanese government. And I would say they moved from being a state within the state, that is a state with its own finances and its own military, its own army and its own social services, and they moved from a state within the state to today, Lebanon is a state within Hezbollah's state. So Iran, like Lebanon today is, feels and looks like a province of Iran where the religious laws do not really apply. So you do not see uh, women forced to wear the veil or banned from football stadiums like in Iran. So the religious rules do not apply. 
But in, when it comes to military and decision makings and security decisions and, and political decisions and, and foreign policy decisions, it's obviously an Iranian province. That in that sense, Hezbollah has moved from a state within the state to the state where Lebanon is a smaller state. So the, the Shia community is maybe at most 50% of the overall Lebanese population. Uh, not that much, no. Like the last census that the Lebanon has, official census, was in 1932. Ever since then, we didn't have any official census because of the sectarian politics that control Lebanon. And each sect is worried that the census would reveal something that would affect their representation in the parliament and the government. But there have been some unofficial census from different institutions uh, and statistics uh, um, uh, companies. And more or less, I would say that the Shia today constitute 30 percent. 30 to 35 percent of the population because the Sunnis are also a huge uh, uh, component of the Lebanese society. And the Christians uh, dropped from 50 percent in 1932 to uh, 30, 35 percent around, around these numbers. So the Shia are not a majority. They see themselves as a majority in the region that covers the Shia crescent, that is uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. If but they look Syria, at it, Syria's majority Sunni. Yeah, but if the way they see it, if you look at all these countries in uh, terms of uh, constituents and in terms of political power, and in terms of minorities that are part of the Shia uh, umbrella, they see themselves as a majority. They're majority in Iran. They are a majority in Iraq. They are not a minority in Lebanon. They have only the Syria problem, and that's a big problem for them. So you're absolutely right. The fact that they do not have a majority uh, Shia community in Syria uh, constitutes a big challenge for them. So certainly one of the elements of Hezbollah's power in Lebanon has been, if not the, the direct assistance, the, the, the deep engagement of Syria and Syrian politicians and business people in Lebanon's economy, Lebanon's politics— how has that changed in, in your lifetime? How has that changed in the midst of this ongoing war in Syria? So I grew up in Lebanon between the south and, and, and uh, Beirut during the Syrian hegemony in Lebanon, that is, that followed the, uh, the civil war. So in 1990 until 2005, when the Cedar Revolution happened and the Lebanese uh, took the streets after the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, and the Cedar Revolution happened and the uh, Syrian army left Lebanon. The army left Lebanon. It doesn't mean that Syrian politics left Lebanon, right? So this phase was the phase where Syria has been entrenched in Lebanon, as was in charge of uh, Lebanese politics and security and military and financial decisions. 2005 was, was a big uh, uh, crossroad for Lebanon. Unfortunately, the March 14 coalition, which governed Lebanon post-Syrian withdrawal, made uh, some compromises and did not really protect Lebanon from the other kind of hegemony, failed to protect Lebanon from the other kind of hegemony, which is the Iranian hegemony. So today you see that the Hezbollah, Iran via Hezbollah, has inherited Lebanon from the Syrian regime. And the Syrian regime is still part of this uh, control system, but it's not the same. Hezbollah was not involved in politics when the Syrians were there. Today, Hezbollah controls all politics 
and Syria helps. And we are seeing a sustained protest movement in Lebanon start in October. It's continued. A lot of that protest movement is about changing the nature of Lebanon's confessional system, which allocates government positions based on religious or ethnic identities. How has Hezbollah responded to this? How has Iran responded to what may be an existential threat to its influence in the Levant? Yeah, that's the, that's the word, existential threat. It's happening in Lebanon, it's happening in Iraq, and to a certain extent, it's happening inside Iran. So the Iranian regime is looking at this as the Shia crescent is turning against it. So they've been uh, investing so much in this Shia crescent, which is linking the uh, points of influence in the region, that is Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and the Shia Crescent is not just, just a land corridor to transfer weapons. It's really a place to project power in the region. So today, the Shia Crescent is actually turning against uh, Iran. Now, I know from my own trips to Lebanon that there's a Hezbollah set of institutions. There's an Amal set of institutions, which is another Shia party. There is an effort to promote movements like Lebanese Wabas, which say there shouldn't be any sort of sectarian identification. How do those different movements play out both broadly and within the Shia community? So Hezbollah and Amal, I call them frenemies because they don't really like each other. And they were forced to form an alliance when the Iranians and the Syrians formed an alliance during the civil war in Lebanon. For Amal, they feel that Hezbollah took their power, which is true, and took their people, which is true. For Hezbollah, Amal is uh, just a corrupt organization that they have to deal with. Today, what changed is that they're not equal anymore. Hezbollah took over. Hezbollah has more power, is more organized. Uh, it's uh, state-sponsored. Iran uh, gives them whatever they need, and they have the money and the arms. So eventually, uh, Nabih Berri uh, and Amal movement feel that they have lost. So Amal is not really a factor today. The other secular uh, uh, anti-Hezbollah groups and uh, political figures and opposition, they are important as a voice, but they do not have the power to actually offer an alternative to the people. And today we are at a very interesting juncture for Hezbollah. They have three major challenges. One, that they have a financial crisis. They worry that Iran will stop funding them at one point because Iran is facing another financial crisis. So they're saving up the money, meaning that their constituency is not benefiting from their services uh, as the way they used to. The second challenge is the protests. They feel that the uh, silent majority, which had no alternative before Hezbollah as a father figure, today they feel that these people do have an alternative, which is this national sentiment that uh, is calling for citizenship and the Lebanese state. And this is, this is a big challenge for them, especially that the Shia are, are taking to the streets. The third challenge is that they have lost a lot of people in Syria, and they don't have time today to compensate for the skills and the commandments that they've lost in Syria. They need time to train and, and hire these people. Final question, what does that transition away from the status quo look like in Lebanon? Lebanon's had a confessional political system for a very long time. Arguably, Lebanon was created in order to have a confessional political system. There's widespread agreement that Lebanon's political system doesn't work anymore, but I don't see a clear alternative to it 
coming forward? What does the transition away from the status quo look like? Is it gradual? Does it have intermediate steps? Is it sudden? Does it follow the collapse of the economy and the polity? Or is there some other sort of pacted transition that goes on? Now we're going through, like the collapse is happening. The economic collapse is happening. We're not waiting for it anymore. And it's going to be a very long and painful uh, deterioration of the state institution and financial institution, right? And people are already feeling it. Because this is gradual, the, the, the collapse is gradual, I think also the, the change is going to be gradual. And there are two main factors when it comes to these uh, transitions, right? One is the elections. So if we manage to uh, come up with an electoral law that represents the people outside the sectarian uh, system, then yes, it's, it's, it's possible. But it's hard and to do because the people who make up the electoral law are people who come out of the sectarian system. This is system. the thing. If the, fa if the state fails and there is international intervention of some kind. Lebanon is now working with the IMF in order to uh, draw a roadmap uh, for Lebanon's economy, right? If Lebanon reaches a bailout plan in a couple of months to, uh, uh, to, to, to bring this together, then the international community will be able to include certain conditions in a package, including the uh, electoral law, early elections. It really depends on how the international community is looking at Lebanon, and it really depends on how the Lebanese protesters can organize themselves. And it partly depends on the willingness of the current elites to compromise and to feel that they're better off potentially losing power than well, trying to— Well, this is what's happening now. But I mean, if eventually they lose everything— with an IMF bailout means that this, they, they, they lose their power. And the international community is not going to come and bail out Lebanon with this government. There will be a package of conditions that is going to force these people who prefer not to go and who are holding on to power. Like, for example, I'll give you an example, the electricity sector. With this new ministerial statement, it's very clear that there is no plan. It's the same plan as the other, uh, the former government's plan. Because the people who are benefiting from the electricity today, the corrupt politicians benefiting from the electricity, are part of this government. So they are not going to change. And they also own the, the companies that make money selling exactly. electricity to people who can't get electricity from the, exactly. Exactly. the government electric company. So they're not going to change that. And the electricity is number one sector that is drying Lebanon's finances and adding to its debt. So this is something that, according to Sadr, for example, which, it, which is basically the meeting that took place in Paris in April 2018, uh, imposing reforms in Lebanon for, for financial package, electricity is number one priority. So but, they but will the have to do this. But the reality is there was a big international plan to push reform yeah. in Lebanon, mm -hmm. which didn't manage to push reform in Lebanon. The Lebanese economy has been on decline. The Lebanese economy continues to be in decline. And your analysis is that ultimately the international community and the need for economic salvation will pave the way for political salvation. It's two things. In the case of IMF bailout, uh, yes, there will be economic, uh, the, the, the IMF is not going to come and bail out Lebanon without the reforms. They will have to force these reforms. And they, if they force these reforms, that's bad news to the current political class because that's exactly why they didn't want to do reforms. They'll might, be there, out. might there be survivors who, who get through that period and, and 
and folks who don't? Or you think it's going to eliminate think, your confidence, going to eliminate the whole class? I think anyone who is involved in corruption, every one of these people, whether people who are part of the government or not, they're all involved in uh, corruption deals, including Hariri whose people have been involved in the garbage collection. And there's a New York Times article about the garbage collection scandal that Hadid is involved in, like they've been making money off the garbage collection. And every one of these politicians is involved one way or another in a deal that has been drying Lebanon's finance, everyone. The other challenge really is the street, the people. They need to organize themselves and have a a plan for the post-collapse, right? Because everyone has a plan for the post-collapse. Because at the end of the day, the international community needs an interlocutor in Lebanon. And if the street does not form itself as an interlocutor, uh, then the current politicians will remain to be the interlocutors. And and in reality, we have to say that the street was not an effective interlocutor in Egypt. The street has not been an effective interlocutor really in any of the the Arab Spring yeah. or Arab uprising yeah. states, but you seem to be optimistic that not only will the international community succeed where the political system has not in reforming mm. itself, but also the street will be able to bring itself together. I'm saying they should. I'm not saying they will. I'm saying they should organize themselves. And if themselves. they can't, what's the alternative look like? More painful measures because any uh, plan uh, offered by the IMF to bail out Lebanon is going to be extremely painful. And the problem is that at the end of the day, if you don't have uh, the street or organized street protest as, as the interlocutor, then you will have to do with whatever is there. And then some of these people might survive because you need uh, you need someone to talk to. Without the street uh, organizing itself, unfortunately, we will not have the same people in power, but we will have something uh, which is mediocre, to, to, to say the least. And I'm not sure that the international community will, will succeed, right? This is going to be, uh, we're talking about a, a long period of painful deterioration and pushback from the current political class, which is not going to be easy for change. So I'm feeling, I, I'm thinking it's going to be a long phase of Venezuela scenario before we get to a point where they will actually allow the international community to implement reforms. And the Venezuela scenario has gone on for years. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm saying. It's going to be a very, very long phase of painful scenario of deterioration, economic deterioration, before we get to a phase where we realize that we should do something. That's what I said, you know, like eventually these little changes that happened in terms of national identities and anti-sectarian street protests, eventually they will play out. But eventually means in many, many, many years. I'm not optimistic uh, uh, on the short term, but on the long term, something something has changed. Ingeldar, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Next up, John McKinley and I contextualize the role of sectarianism in the Middle East. We just talked to Hanin, and she was talking about Iran's role in Lebanon and sectarianism in Lebanon. But what does sectarianism even mean for someone who's new to the Middle East? What do they need to know to understand that? Well, what sectarianism means and what it means is, is sometimes different. Um, sectarianism describes the fact that that some Arabs, uh, some Muslims are in the Sunni school and some are in the Shia school, some are in the Ibadi school. There are other smaller schools. They largely have to do with theological dispute about who would lead 
the Muslim community in the 7th and 8th century, it's turned into small uh, legal and theological differences that developed over time. But essentially, you've had countries that have switched from Sunni to Shia, countries that have had Shia leadership and Sunni populations and vice versa. I think it's really in the modern period, in the last 100 years, that people think of these things as being immutable, when in fact in history they've often shifted back and forth. I think at its essence it's about the politicization of these religious identities as well. The idea that um, the political order should be um, organized around the sect, the religious sect that you're born into. And often these these things are viewed as permanent. So you're born a maybe a Maronite in Lebanon and you can't change that. That's, that's your identity. That's your ethnic identity. Um, and then because it's then linked with politics, sectarianism then becomes linked with benefits and perhaps with corruption and... So then it takes on a whole other level. People use sectarianism sometimes to build political support, sometimes to differentiate. Sometimes you want to highlight sectarianism and, and governments with uh, that are led by minorities often like to accentuate sectarianism because the minorities that are favored rely on the government even more. And it's it's possible for people to make sectarian identities more or less salient, depending on uh, what's in their interests or what the current context is. What does that look like? You guys are talking a lot in the abstract, but Will, you lived in Lebanon. What did sectarianism actually look like to you as a foreigner living there? Well, I think in part, it's very visible in streets and in somewhere like Beirut. Uh, different areas of Beirut are affiliated with certain sects and then with certain political leaders. And so as you're walking through the streets, you can see huge posters uh, for certain political parties. And so in that sense, it's, it's sort of very noticeable. But I think it has an impact on, on people's lives as well. And in some ways, which might not seem sort of immediately obvious, I had some friends who uh, were from different sects. One was uh, Muslim and one was Christian, and they wanted to get married. And there's no way in Lebanon for people from different sects to get married. So they had to travel to Cyprus and have a civil marriage there and then to come back and then to have their marriage recognized. So in some ways, it's sort of built into um, into sort of how people live their lives and, and the laws of the country. Hanin also mentioned how she's seen sectarianism change over time. But what does that mean in terms of your research and in terms of what you've experienced throughout your career? Increasingly, where people are more mobile, where people are in more diverse settings, uh, we're seeing in places like uh, Lebanon, in places like Iraq, people are saying, how does that, how does that work for me? I want to have a friend who's just a friend. I want to have a work colleague who does the best work. I don't want to have to go through some other process other than optimizing what I'm trying to optimize. And I think it, it, it's consistent with this broader change we saw that in many ways, that sectarianism, these kinds of ties uh, are security for very unstable situations. And John and I had an interesting conversation with some, some kind of young Saudis, and they were talking about uh, how the Saudi state is trying to define what it means to be a Saudi. And they were sort of going through this list of saying the Saudi state can't define it. So the Saudi state at the moment is 
not trying to define Saudi identity as being Sunni identity because there's a very large Shia minority in, in Saudi Arabia, especially in the eastern provinces. And to define it as explicitly Sunni would be to um, to cut all of those people out and say you're not you're not really Saudi. Uh, in the case of Iraq, you have a Shia majority that came to power. What does Shiism mean in that context? There's a clear divide between Iran and Iraq. It's Arab versus Persian to start with. But the the, the sectarianism creates a, a sort of tension. I think one of the mistakes the U.S. made in 2003 was it assumed that sectarianism was part of the fabric and they understood what it meant. And I think sectarianism is used by different people in different times. And the U.S. unintentionally highlighted sectarianism, made Iraq harder to pull together. But I think we ended up baking into to post-Saddam Iraq a sectarian problem which, which continues uh, to challenge Iraqis and, and U.S. policymakers. In your opinion, should people in the U.S. government really be looking to understand sectarianism more, or do you think it's being overplayed? What do you think is the best course? I think we, we tend to look at these things almost as if we're, we're sorting blocks. I mean, that's a green block, that's a red block, that's a blue block. And I think people need to understand not merely that these, these distinctions are there, but to really understand the meaning of the distinctions is flexible, is dynamic, has changed and will change. And that's a potential tool. It's a potential straitjacket, but it, it's still in the in the, the realm of potentiality. Definitely. And I, I think it's really important to think about all of the different ways that people might choose to identify. I mean, especially when people are thinking about grievances, one level may be a sectarian, but it might also be about class. It might be about socioeconomic level. It might be about whether you're rural or urban. Uh, it, it, it could be a whole host of things. And so I think Policymakers should be aware that uh, people can exploit this. There's this idea of sectarian entrepreneurs, people, political leaders who seek to exacerbate these divides when it benefits them. But it's also a mistake to try to over-instrumentalize the U.S. preference for secularism. That, is, that ends up getting the U.S. supporting people who say exactly the right things to American officials but have no actual following in their communities. Now, I don't. ultimately, this isn't something we can shape very much. We should certainly be open to uh, working with religious forces and secular forces. And it seems to me that it's about a balance rather than a choice. And I think oftentimes we see it as a choice. And that's a mistake. If you look at Lebanon, the whole system of the state is built on sectarianism. But in the Ta'if Accords, which ended the, the Lebanese civil war, there's an explicit statement that Lebanese politicians will work towards uh, ending sectarianism in Lebanese politics. That was, that was over 30 years ago. And now we're seeing these huge protests on the street, uh, sort of calling for an end to these sectarian systems. But it's, it's very difficult to, to move it. I think one final question. Uh, so Hanin painted a pretty optimistic view of what's going to happen next uh, for the future of Lebanon. What do you think is going to be coming next? What I keep hearing from people of the administration is that U.S.-Lebanon policy is increasingly driven by hostility to Iran and increasingly driven by the idea that the U.S. 
has to push the Lebanese to push Hezbollah out of power. And, and, and people aligned with Hezbollah are currently uh, leading the government of Lebanon. Uh, that may work, but it may not work. And uh, to my mind, the, the whole idea of having U.S. policy in the Middle East centered around isolating Iran can't really work because U.S. hasn't put the resources into doing it. And I, I think Lebanon is going to have a whole bunch of problems. I think France, which has historic ties, especially to the Maronite community in Lebanon, is going to have problems. The U.S. may find itself outmaneuvered and in many ways isolated. And rather than suppressing Hezbollah, it may become more irrelevant to Lebanese politics. One of the successes the U.S. has had over the last decade is it's built up alternative forces to Hezbollah, especially the Lebanese armed forces. It may be that in the interest in cauterizing Hezbollah, the U.S. ends up entrenching Hezbollah and not having the desired effect it wants to have at all. I think that can wrap up our discussion on that very optimistic note. Um, thank you both for joining me and inviting me to sit with you guys during the discussion. McKinley, it's great to have you on the team. We look forward to talking further. Thanks, McKinley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find more analysis about this topic linked in the show notes. And you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.